you have a Bible with you this morning, would you uh, open up the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, no worries. Maybe you have it on your phone, you can follow along that way or watch on the screen. The, the verses we're going to look at will be up there. We'll get into that in just a minute. I'd love to pray with you first before we step into it. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you so much for every single individual who fills a seat in this auditorium right now. We're so grateful for the reality of what we just declared. You are our living hope. And we want to know more about you. We want to know more about ourselves before you and your claim upon us. So I ask right now that you give us an understanding through looking at your word, who you are in relation to us, and what our responsibility is to that. God, I ask that for those watching online, for those in the auditorium right now, that we'll leave here this morning with a greater sense of understanding of the claim that you have placed upon humanity and our responsibility to do an action with that claim. Help us, Father, now as we examine your word. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. In the last week, we asked this question, who is like our God? When we were together last weekend and the church had the chance to respond, no one. And let me just give you a brief review of what we looked at last week. I said, who is like our God when we looked at the story of Hannah? Hannah was an individual who was a barren young woman and she was pleading with God for a baby and God gave her a son and she had the right to raise a son who became a prophet, the prophet Samuel, and he was the prophet that was used to spare a nation. And we asked the exact same question, who is like our God, when we looked at the life of Joseph. Joseph was a young man who was in his 20s. He was put in a dungeon serving under Pharaoh. Pharaoh took him out because God rescued him and elevated him to the second position in all of the land of Egypt. And we asked the question, who is like our God? And then we came to a third person, Esther. Esther is living in the streets of Babylon, what we would think of today as Iran. And she was in the ancient world of Persia. And God rescued her and elevated her to the queen of one of the world's most powerful empires. And we're left with a question each time, who is like our God to do that? Well, I come back around to that same question this morning. Who's like our God to walk alongside you and I? Who's like our God to walk alongside us when we're going through trauma, when we're going through difficult times, circumstances you may not even know that you're going to face this week, perhaps some that you stepped into over the last month things that you didn't anticipate were coming. Who's like our God when we're going through various forms of testing? Well, this morning in, in Daniel chapter three, we get a chance to look at three individuals in a much more in-depth way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of you know them as Shadrach and Benny because you think of Veggie Tales, right? And so with, with the Veggie Tales story, we get our theology sometimes from those stories. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just ask any child around here at church, they'll fill you in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have this journey that they're walking through. Historically, they're identified as being spiritually distinct. But at the same time, they're culturally relevant. How do you balance the two? How are you spiritually distinct and yet relevant in your culture? And then the second question that goes with it, how do you respond when things go really bad? Let me contrast that for you. In, in the case of Hannah, she gets the baby. In the case of Joseph, he gets the job promotion. He gets to be second to Pharaoh. In the case of Esther, she gets to marry the prince. Things worked out really well for them. But what about when they don't? 
What about when the giant in your life smashes you over and over and over again and you're crushed? Some of you here are facing things that you never knew you were going to face. Some of you will face some things in the next week. And maybe in the midst of that, you're even asking, does God even have me during that time? Does he even know? Does he care? If you have or you are bearing up currently under incredibly intense pressure, this account has been designed for you. This story, God included for you. So go with me to Daniel chapter 3, if you would. And verse 1 starts out this way. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, if this was a child's story, it could be titled this, the king who really likes himself a lot, exclamation point. This guy really likes himself. He has a huge ego. You're gonna see that in the story as it comes out. But the great benefit of living in the modern culture in this world, we know this is not a child's story. This is not just some fable. These are real historical people living in a real time in history. Now, critics years ago would have asked you to believe that the book of Daniel was actually fabricated, that it was something that was made up by those who were the authors of the Bible. Until the recent discovery in the 1940s of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which validated that this is actually a historical document that was written word for word by individuals who actually lived during this period of time. But if you want to authenticate it further, let's see what the ultimate source of authentication is about this story you're about to look at. That would be Jesus himself. Jesus speaks about Daniel. Look with me on the screen at this one. Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. The only reason I included that verse is because Jesus sees Daniel as a real historical individual. Not only that, a prophet, meaning a spokesperson for God. And Jesus says, there's things you have to learn from Daniel. There's value by reading what he has written. That Jesus saw him as authentic is enough. But modern archaeology has revealed a lot of things about Daniel, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But before we do that, let's ask ourselves this question. How do we understand this personality of this king? What's this guy like in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I mean, what kind of an impression do you have of yourself to make a 90-foot-high statue of yourself, right? Like, this building is 30-foot high. That would be three of these buildings stacked on top of each other. And then he overlays it with gold. Who would do that? Well, this guy's raised in royal splendor. His daddy was a general in the armies of Babylon. And when he conquered Babylon, he himself handed the throne over to Nebuchadnezzar and made him king. And so we've got a guy who's got a huge ego. So he's got this statue that he's built of himself. Why the statue? Why make this image? Why not just worship him? Well, like the pharaohs of old, my impression is, is that he wanted something that would say, I was here. Even when his life was over, he wanted like the great sphinx in Egypt or like the pyramids or like the colossus at Rhodes for people all over the world to look at him and say, that guy was a real individual and he's big enough to say, look at me. I want you to recognize who I am. But there's also something else going on here. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you may have read chapter 2. And when you go back to chapter 2, you find that Daniel actually interpreted a dream of the king of Babylon and the king was frustrated with it overnight, night after night after night. He couldn't make sense of the dream. Daniel interpreted it, and in the dream was a statue. And the statue had a head of gold. 
Well, apparently, Daniel relayed to Nebuchadnezzar, that's you, O king. You're the one that sits on top of that statue. And he waited 16 years for something to happen as a result of it. He got tired of waiting, so he commissions a statue. Then he hosts a black tie event. And he expects everyone who's anyone to show up because he wants to feel taller by making other people feel smaller. So as the limos are pulling up, people are getting out of the car, they kiss his hand, they bow to his feet, and just so we're really clear, he is not concerned about the ordinary individuals in his empire. His concern is that the dignitaries, the leaders of his country, that they would bow to him. Go with me to verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Now, it looks like a list in descending order. People who are the highest realm, the satraps, they they reign over regions, and then you get all the way down to those who are like sheriffs. Verse 3, then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, it's very likely that this image here represents Nabu. Nabuchadnezzar is his name in the Akkadian, ancient Chaldean language. The Israelites knew him as Nebuchadnezzar. But Nabu is the beginning of his name, and his father named him that because he said, Nabu, protect my son, Nabuchadnezzar. So it's very likely that the image is a statue of Nabu, this god that they worship. So I'd love for you to see the image that's going up on the screen because this particular image, they're going to flip it over in just a minute, it actually was found with a little plaque underneath it. That plaque and that image is found in the British Museum. That's Nabu. That's the god that was worshipped in Babylon. Apparently, Nabu Kadnazur took that actual image, overlaid it with gold, made it 90 foot high, and demanded that everybody worship him by worshiping that. So check what's going on here. He's gathered the most influential people in the world. The wealthiest, the best educated, those who are the rulers, and he wants a pledge of commitment to Nabu, in other words, himself, Nabu Kanazur. They stand before the image and they absolutely realize what's being asked of them because everyone has a price, the saying goes. What's their price? Well, their price is they want to keep their position, they like their lifestyle, they like the culture they live in. So they're willing to bow down, apparently, to this, verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire." So peoples from every nation, every language, every tongue, in other words, the people who have been conquered from around the world and dragged into Babylon, this is how I think it's going down. Welcome. I'm so glad you came to my party. Now bow down or I will kill you. How's that for a party invitation? That's one you can't really refuse when you've got the most powerful man in the world demanding that. He's the king 
of the greatest empire that had ever existed to that point. Now, I'm speculating what caught most people's eye is this blazing furnace, this image that's off to the side, because apparently when they built the statue, they needed a smelting furnace. So probably this smelting furnace is left over from construction where they needed to boil down the gold, and now they're using this for a place to make human torture. So the celebration is ready. The orchestra is about to play. It's very subtle, but it's not even stated here, but do you notice that they use music to prepare people for worship? Well, that's absolutely a mimic of the Bible, verse seven. Therefore, at that time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So it's going exactly according to his plan. He's got a strategy. It's a spectacular ceremony. The intimidation factor is off the charts. Imagine this awesome image towering in the Middle East. It's on the plain of Dura. You can't miss it. It's made of gold. It's 90 foot high. And you've got this huge crowd of dignitaries. And nearby is this furnace and it's roaring, and even in the heat of the Middle Eastern afternoon, you can see the distortion of the air around it as it superheats. Nobody wants to get near it. You can smell it. You can feel it. I know what's in store for me if I don't listen. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he owns the Royal Philharmonic Persian Orchestra, so the herald gives the signal. The baton goes up in the air, and everyone knows they have to bow. So the conductor is signaled, the music begins, and everyone does what they would do at the same time. Most foreheads go to the ground, and it's such a simple thing. That's all I have to do to fit in? I, I just have to bow down and I get to keep my lifestyle? I get to keep my wealth? I get to keep my position? That's it? I'm totally in for that. Except in the midst of the crowd, you've got these three. These three who defy the ruler of the world. And flashing in their mind, no doubt in that moment, is God's command to Moses in the book of Exodus. You shall have no other gods before me. Or Isaiah, what Isaiah writes about Nabu himself, look with me on the screen at this one, Isaiah 46.1, Bell has bowed down, Nabu stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beast and the cattle. Isaiah is essentially saying, even the stone gods bow down to the one living God. Their stone gods have to be carried around in carts dragged by cattle. They're nothing. So I'm sure this is flashing through their minds. So in that moment, according to verse 8, the celebration stops. Verse 8, for this reason at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. So as the king's counselors bow, the Chaldeans, they've got their eye on the crowd. Apparently out of the corner of their eye, they see what's going on. They watch the crowd, 
And these aren't just random people who are watching a crowd. These Chaldeans are considered the master race of Babylon. In other words, they're not transplants because of other conquered nations. They're natives. They were born there. They're the intelligent scientists. And they're the king's counselors. They're considered members of this inner circle. And so they interrupt the ceremony and they quote to the king his own decree. Chapter, verse 8, chapter 3, they brought charges against them. Now, this means they're verbally slicing them. You've got three Hebrew words in your notes this morning. Here's your first one. Look with me on the screen at this. Akal, accuse or devour. We might use it this way in our modern English language. We would say they really shredded them or they sunk their teeth into them. That's the visual image that's represented here. They're tearing them apart with their words while they're telling the king his own law. Why are they doing that? For for a specific reason. In Babylonian protocol, once a decree was issued, even the king himself could not rescind it. So they really hate these believers in God so much that the opposition here is not hard to understand. They're Chaldeans, they're natives of Babylon. They've got the God that they worship. Most likely, it's jealousy that's driving them. Go with me to verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Then these men were brought before the king. Here's what's kind of unspoken. That they showed up. That they didn't run and hide in a closet. That they didn't suddenly decide, I got to be out of town. That they showed up already knowing they're going to be the outcast in this setting. They're going to be the spectacle. That they're there. They're not hiding, and they're doing everything right. They're over the administration of Babylon, according to verse 12. They're administrators over the entire province. They've done what's right, but they're, check this, they're enduring the impact of their culture that's going wrong. They're doing what's right before God, but they're suffering the impact of the culture they live in. And it's not too small to note they stand completely alone. It's just three of them. Three of them out of all of those who are gathered, they're alone. And so we're told in verse 12, these men, they disregard you. Now, if you want to go after the ego of a maniac-driven king, you go after what you could push on his button, which would be they disrespect you. That's your second Hebrew word. Look with me on the screen. Law. King. They count you as nothing. Now, that would tick him off, and apparently it did. Produced exactly what they were looking for, rage and anger, everything they could hope for. He's furious. You can see the redness building up in his face. Blood pressure is boiling. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made. Very well. Just pause there for a second. That very well is, 
I'm going to give you a chance to really think this through. I'll give you a pass because I really like you guys. But there's going to be consequences. Finish it out. If you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And when they come before him, I think this is what's going on because it's human nature. I, be, I believe there's a standing off moment, like a staring. You know the look. You've seen it when somebody's raging and they just glare at you. So he briefly is controlling his anger and then comes this. Is it true? Now, why ask the rhetorical question? Why is he going there? Uh, in childhood, we all heard rhetorical questions, right, from our parents. Moms are really good at rhetorical questions. Do I have to come back there? Do I have to come upstairs? Now, I grew up in a second-story home. Uh, my, my parents had a two-story home. My bedroom was on the second floor, and my mom would commonly stand at the bottom of the steps as she listened to me pound on my brothers and then would shout out, do I have to come upstairs? Well, one time, apparently, when I was really feeling brave when I was 12, I shouted back, yes! I only did that once, right? I tend to remember those moments. Why ask the rhetorical question? because he fully expects them to back down. Anybody in their right mind would. Who wants to be roasted? Anybody would respond unless they're driven by something greater. Unless the loyalty factor is that high. See, he knows this is about conviction. There's no insult intended here. There is no disrespect. He knows what's going on. There is a difference between having someone in your life who is worthy of your respect and having someone in your life whom you worship. God said, don't worship anybody but me. You may respect other people. You may revere them and hold them in high regard. Do not worship. He's saying, I have your respect. What I want is your worship. And if you do not, there will be consequences. So let's call this what it really, really is. Let me just summarize for you the conflict that's going on. Focus your mind on that 90-foot image. Now, biblically, that 90-foot image is a great representation of the kingdoms of this world. It's what the Bible calls it, the things that are made by man, kingdoms of this world. And in contrast to that, we've got these three, within whom the image of God dwells. They're God people. They're loyal to God. And so this loyalty factor has changed them. The imprint of God is upon them. And it's a reflection of what's written in the New Testament about you, New Hope, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning. And look with me on the screen at the book of Colossians 3.10. You, believer in Jesus, you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, created you. There's a new image. You're not just made in the image of God physically. You're made in the image of God spiritually now because Jesus indwells you, the Holy Spirit. You've been made anew. So in this sense... We're God's image on this planet. Jesus is in you. So here's the real issue. Will the image of God, which he has made, bow to the image which man has made? 
Is our loyalty that weak or is it much stronger than that? Is the loyalty to God or to the things of this world? Now, there's no doubt whatsoever, if you've read the stories in Daniel, he, Nebuchadnezzar really values these guys. He personally has elevated them to this position of prominence. He found them 10 times better than anybody else in his kingdom. So he's given them a second chance. I already declared earlier, I'm, I'm going to throw anybody else right in, but I'm giving you a chance to think this through. So the orchestra leader has the baton back in the air. The trumpet players have drawn in a second breath. And if they bow, the matter will be forgotten. What comes next from the king's lips is the determining phrase that we all face in one situation or another. It's the most significant statement and it seals the deal for any person who belongs to God. Finish out verse 15, here's part B. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? See, he's throwing it down, right? So I ask you, New Hope, who is like the Lord our God? No one. No one's like the Lord our God. Who's going to rescue you out of my hands? I'm the most powerful man on this planet. Now they've got the loyalty in the right place. They're ready to lay down their lives. They know 2 Chronicles 16, 9. You heard me with that last week. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole planet, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. They've got the loyalty issue down. And here's the reality for you and I this morning. Loyalty is not something we suddenly are in a flash. It's the character trait of a predetermined heart. It's the character trait of a predetermination. See, this is how this relates to you this morning. That's a hard question. I have to ask myself this question. Where are you on this issue? Have you predetermined your loyalty to Jesus? Even if you get the wrong medical report, even if you get the wrong relationship, even if you get the wrong bank account, is your loyalty to God or to those circumstances? In other words, is there anything that could make you turn from him? This is a question you have to meditate deeply in your own heart and it's just meant for you to meditate upon. Where am I on this particular issue? And here's why it's important to resolve this in your life. Because until you do, Satan will bring it. He will bring the heat. He will bring the furnace to test you and try you until you determine where do I stand on these issues. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Check verse 18, love verse 18. Even if he does not. It makes me think of the Mercy Me song. That's such a great song. Even if, even if he does not. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So the orchestra's ready to play, right? The baton is in the air. The leader is about ready to do the drown down stroke and the Babylonian leaders are ready to bow. 
And they say in verse 16, we don't need to give you an answer, which actually means there's no need to defend ourselves. We don't have to go behind stage and come up with a plan and then come back out. We don't need to negotiate. We don't need time to think about this. There's no regrouping needed. The decision's already made. Our God is able. He's able, isn't he, church? Say amen if you agree with that. He's able. He's more than able. Our God is able. Do you have that sense of conviction this morning? Do you have the sense of conviction that God can? See, if you believe in Jesus, you're in a relationship with a God that can. He can rescue you for all eternity. He died on the cross to do that. God can save you for eternity. See, the furnace on earth, it doesn't matter two hoots if God can't save you from the flames of hell. The, the furnace on earth is just momentary. If he can't save you for eternity, you've got a bigger issue. These understand he can. It doesn't mean he will, Nebuchadnezzar, but he can do it. So I'm here to remind you this morning that even if you do enter that furnace, even if you are in one right now, you're not alone. God's right there with you. The Lord our God may not keep us out of the furnace every time, but he goes right through it with us. He said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I will bring you through it. So it's very evident why they say, we are not going to in verse 18 because Nebuchadnezzar is not their deliverer. God is. So they had to determine the loyalty factor long before this moment. And in all of the scriptures, there is no more heroic words than verse 18. But even if he does not... See, it's in the same vein as Jesus the night that he's in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. See, it's in that same vein. Even if you don't, God, right there with you. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire just like logs, like firewood. I'm intrigued with verse 20 when it says certain valiant warriors did this. The Hebrew inter interpretation of this is they're the most mighty men in the army. So why the big dudes? Why call out the posse? Do you really need them? You've already got them. This is him going one more step because they've just said, our God is mightier than you. He's able. So he's coming back with, I'll show you who's in control. So verse 22 is like a commentary to all of this. It's, it's as though the author steps back and says, oh, by the way, look with me at verse 22. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire, still tied up. And you get a sense of the magnitude of this man's wrath because the rage is so absurd as though he's not dealing with flesh and blood. He says, open the bellows, superheat this. I want its maximum intensity. Well, at this period of time, the furnaces were made like a kiln. 
They, they were dome-shaped. Obviously, this one was massive to heat the gold for this big statue. Dome-shaped with a funnel at the top, like a milk glass to allow the smoke to escape. And that's where they walked, apparently, to dump these guys down in. And when the soldiers pass out from the heat and then they die, they drop them like cordwood. No mortal could survive even the entrance, let alone a moment in this furnace. And rightly here, you would expect this story to stop. If you're new to the Bible, you'd say, well, that's it. That's got to be the end. The guards die. They die from the heat. The believers, they fall into the furnace. It's over, right? Until the king looks in. And apparently he can see from his vantage point into the door where fuel is introduced and apparently where oxygen is introduced. And he can see what he least expects to see. There's not just three. There's four life forms. Verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This is utter amazement, your third and last Hebrew word. It's the word tavah. It has this thought of sweeping to ruin in the ancient language. Let me help you with this thought. Do you remember um, Michigan-Michigan State game a few years ago? And hands went to the head really quickly at the end of the game. That image is burned in some people's minds, okay? What? Four? I put three in there. I can count the guards. One, two, three, four, five, six. There's four individuals in there. How is this possible? What? This is 9-11. First responders. What? What am I seeing here? And you begin to get a sense of the holy awe that is overcoming them. That's why he says that fourth is like a son of the gods. Is this new hope, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ there? In Nebuchadnezzar's words, it's polytheism that he thinks of, and so he thinks multiple, he speaks gods with small g, and he says it looks like a son of the gods. Whatever it is, is not human. I'm coming to the conclusion it's a pre-incarnate arrival of Jesus. I'll tell you why. I worked my way through college in flight school by working in foundries during the summers. And foundries are where steel is superheated to molten metal. And so, yep, I was one of those guys pulling those metal buckets around, dumping steel into forms. 2,800 degrees is what we had to superheat the oven to in order to turn metal to liquid. And it was so bright white you could not look inside. The heat was so intense you had to wear protective clothing. Asbestos had to cover you to shelter you. No wonder the king is in shock. So how can I know and suspect this is Jesus? This furnace is hot enough to kill at the entrance, meaning it's hot, white hot, knock you over hot. Whatever he sees is brighter, yet stronger, yet more intense than anything man can bring on earth. 
So that causes me to go to God's word. Michael talked about God's word being the centrality of what we do here. Let me think with you through Revelation. What did John record about the appearance of Jesus? Look with me on the screen. Revelation 1.16, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Finish the verse out, just read it. I was dead, I am alive, and I hold the keys to hell. When Nebuchadnezzar says this is like the son of the gods, he doesn't know what to do, he's in shock, he's in utter astonishment. Your redeemer stands with you in the furnace when no one else will, when no one else can. Jesus is there. The Savior who shields you from the flame. He took the heat of the furnace for you. And when you're in your own furnace, he's there to protect you and shelter you and guide you. He's the one who carries you through. So Nebuchadnezzar stands face to face against the king of kings. The king of kings. Capital K over small k. King in the furnace, king outside the furnace. So the king outside the furnace comes as near as he can to the furnace and begins shouting above what I believe is a roar from the bellows. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shagrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. I'm thinking it's very fortunate for King Nebuchadnezzar that the fourth man did not come out. That's a king he would not have wanted to confront at that moment in time. And all of godless Babylon, who just moments ago was on their forehead worshiping the golden idol, they're witnessing the capacity of the living God. Only the ropes are gone from them. Not a hair on their head is singed, their clothing is intact. They don't even smell like smoke. Look at verse 27. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect upon the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of the fire even come upon them. Let's pause there. That one makes me smile because that means somebody had to get up close enough and go, smell them, right? What? You don't even smell like smoke. I've been to bonfires and you can't evade the smell of smoke. Go with me to verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. I bear down on verse 28 when it says, blessed be the God for this reason. If you're in a furnace right now, you're going through times of intensity, going through times of testing, when you're going through that furnace experience, not only are the godless watching you, doesn't mean they won't come to God, not only are the godless watching you, but look who gets the praise in the midst of your trial. See, he didn't say, blessed be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys are special, but that one's more special. 
These guys are something else, but that God, you're to worship him. Therefore, he says in verse 29, I make a decree that any people, any nation or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. I don't know that you want to get your theology from a pagan king from 7,000 years ago, but his theological statement is pretty true here in verse 29. There is no other God who is able to deliver. He sums it up really well for us. It even causes a pagan king to bow. Let me sew this together. Your faithfulness to God does not guarantee the absence of suffering in your life. It doesn't. Somebody sold you a bill of goods if they've told you that. But it also certainly doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong. Sometimes it's just about the people who are watching you while you're in the furnace. Sometimes God brings things your way and allows things to come your way so that people who don't know God can come to know God based on how you respond. So that's why I'm asking you this morning, how are you doing in the midst of that? How are you holding up spiritually? You may be asking legitimately in this moment and thinking, does God even have me right now? Even in those times? I'm here to remind you this morning, if you're in Jesus, if you believe and belong to Jesus, he has you both now and for eternity, amen? He has you. Here's the big issue with that one. If he cannot hold you and guard you for eternity, you've got a much bigger problem than the furnace you're in right now. So where does your loyalty lay? Does it lay to the one who says, I'm searching the entire earth looking to show myself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to me? If you're new to church, maybe you're new to the Bible, let's put this on an eternal scale. The deliverance from the eternal furnace of hell exists for you today. God will wipe away your sins and remember them no more if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus personally endured the cross. He went through the furnace, if you will, in my place, in your place. He did it for all of us to pay for sin. So you and I can say we're delivered today because of the fourth man in the furnace, because of Jesus. So there is no other God who is able to deliver. So I close with this question, church. Who is like the Lord our God? No one. Let's pray. Father, I believe that I stand in the midst of individuals who would be loyal to you no matter the cost. And, and many of us don't even know until we face the opposition. But whatever we face tomorrow in our workplace or in our neighborhood or in our school, God, I pray that your presence with us is so powerful that we won't have a doubt in our mind who we are loyal to. But if there's a question in a heart right now, God, I, I pray that you would cause one who's wondering, could I hold up in the circumstances? Would I be loyal? 
to make this a time when we would put our stake in the ground and predetermine in advance before we find ourselves in a setting that would challenge our walk. So before we turn on the internet and go to a website we shouldn't, Father, before we look in magazines that we shouldn't look at, before we go to a party or some environment that would put us in a precarious situation, God, cause us in advance of that to predetermine where our loyalty lay. God, that we would have the strength through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us to proudly and gladly say, I stand for God and I will not waver. Let that be a characteristic trademark of this church, Father. I pray for that. I pray that the boldness represented by your people here would echo and reverberate to a watching community. Lord God, that Lansing, all of the metro area would turn and look and say, who is like the Lord their God? We ask for this, for this strength, for this thing that goes beyond our own capacity, but at the same time the ability to predetermine who we will stand for. We ask for this in the matchless name of the one who's able to deliver, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.